Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I think it's so weird that at probably the most um, fertile time in restaurants in this city, I don't know why they don't just have two critics. I don't know why. To keep up and not have to make these decisions and not have to have you and I have a conversation about, I mean, why should anything really be overlooked? This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Writer, podcaster, and cookbook collaborator Andrew Friedman has a unique vantage point in talking about chefs and food writing as a profession. He's worked with some of the most interesting voices in the restaurant world, going back a decade and longer, including Daniel Ballou, Alfred Portali, Michelle Bernstein, Bill Telepan, and David Waltuck. In this episode, we talk to Andrew about his most recent work, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food, a page-turning, behind-the-scenes look at what makes a single restaurant dish. We discuss the book's unique reporting process and how Andrew views his work in the larger context of food media. We also get some restaurant picks and pay tribute to one of the industry's most influential and frankly forgotten players. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew. Andrew Friedman, welcome back to This Is Taste. Thank you, Matt. I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, first off, I need to absolutely call out your podcast, which I listen to regularly. So I'll link to it in the show notes. Check it out. Covers the industry. Like we, we just had Jason Hamill, and we, we both are interviewing Jason. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's called Andrew Talks to Chefs. Uh, about a week ago, we hit our sixth anniversary already, which I can't believe. I still remember nervously going to see Alex Stupak six years ago for the very first interview for the show. I'm still nervous to talk to Alex. <laughs> it ended up, it was a good thing. It pushed me, yeah. you know, because I'd interviewed him before and I knew I had to come ready to play. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, it it still morphs a little bit here and there. Uh, you know, I, I've started doing these uh, quote-unquote special conversations to talk about happy and sad things in the industry or or have a place if a chef who's been on wants to come on and sort of unpack stuff that's in the news or something that they're particularly want to be encouraging of or be critical of. Uh, it's a space for that. I, I wish I had more time for those because I love mm-hmm. doing that. Um, and then uh, at this point, honestly, the big goal for me is to try to find slightly more... Uh, off the not off the beaten path chefs in terms of um, being known or unknown, but just chefs with slightly different stories, yeah. even by chef standards, yeah. because you know, not counting the special reports we did during COVID, I've got almost two hundred and fifty mm-hmm. episodes, which is probably close to four hundred long form interviews. Yeah. So go back to the archives. There's some great stuff in there. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people start at the beginning if they're a new listener. But um, yeah, so I'm just I'm trying to really seek out people whose 
stories are highly unusual or who are just great, you know, who would make great drive time, you know, terrestrial radio guests, you <laughs> yeah. know, people who are just super entertaining or have a personal yeah. story that's particularly fascinating. No, it's, it's, it's great stuff. Thank you. I want to, I want to check in first and foremost about what's happening in New York city restaurants. Our listeners often, you know, bring out the, the pad and pen and, and write down what we recommend. But Andrew, you're on the scene. You recently moved back to the city from, from up from Westchester. You're, you're in the scene. What's happening right now? Uh, a lot, you know, it's, it's like, it's, I don't know what we're calling this time. Like, is it, I don't know for some people, if you say we're post pandemic, they'll get upset. Mm. Um, uh, whatever we are, yeah. late pandemic, post pandemic, sure. endemic times. Yeah. Um, but it feels like it used to feel, you know, there's more new restaurants than you can keep up with. Um, uh, there's, you know, every week there's at least one Instagram post by a colleague and it's a place I, I hadn't heard about yet. Yeah. You know, it's just about to kind of get on everyone's radar. Uh, there's a growing list of places that both, professionally because I should be in the loop and personally because I've been around a long time and I know a lot of people I feel bad that I haven't made it to yet. Um, and I'm not someone who calls around asking people to comp me, you know, and, yeah. I, and I don't have an expense account and I have two kids in college. So, you know, that's a factor. But I, I think it's a pretty, ex it's really indistinguishable to me except for the lingering sheds on the sidewalk. Yeah, let's get from, rid of those. From, uh, what'd you say? Let's get rid of those. I don't like them. Tom Colicchio said that in an interview, yeah. that we need to psychologically get rid of them. I, think I it's, agree. It's, I it think is, it's a, a remnant of a time that we want to put behind us. It also just, like, shouldn't be your presentation of a restaurant. It shouldn't be on a shed. And, 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 you know, I don't know when the weather in New York is great for shed dining, maybe, like, two two months a year. Anyways, sorry. Right. One couple glorious weeks in May, yeah. a couple glorious weeks it's, in October. It's, it's if you can't fit, fit folks inside, you know, um, you know, get on the wait list. It's yeah. the way a good restaurant should. Be. Yeah. Um, in any event, uh, I, I think there's a lot of good Italian and Italian American happening right now. That may sound like a weird thing to even point out about New York, but I feel like there's this new this new gear right now. You know, I, I was talking to someone in the Union Square Hospitality Group not long ago, Danny Meyer's company. There's all these mostly women, maybe all women now that they closed two of their restaurants uh, mm -hmm. recently, um, cooking really good Italian slash Italian American food like Hillary Sterling at Chisiamo and Lena Cardullo at uh, Union Square Cafe, yeah. which I just stumbled upon recently. I hadn't even thought of eating there in years. Yeah, same. Have uh, you been since she took over? I haven't, and someone else tipped me to. There's great stuff happening. Her Italian American, her Italian food is incredible. Yeah. And then we have places like Cafe Spaghetti, which yep. is in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, and and the list goes on. You know, we have Nonadora, the, yep. the the pasta maker, uh, just uh, Forsythia, mm -hmm. which most people. I mean, I just had the chef on my show, so maybe they would know Emily that way. Uh, but you know, place that's not like a nationally known place that's that's inspired uh, by a, a Roman trattoria mm -hmm. and and makes all their own pasta. And the pastas there are just outrageous. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's something. Personally, I'm really into the whole wine bar thing. Mm -hmm. I know that's not brand new, but there's some places I think that are, you know, Place de Fete, yeah. which is Nico Russell's, the sister restaurant to uh, Oxalis, mm -hmm. uh, Claude. Yeah. 
I love Claude. Claude Restaurant of the Year, along with, along with Super, Superiority Burger. I think those are the two New York. I haven't made case in point. Yeah. I have to get to Superiority Burger. Yeah. I, I actually may have just made plans yesterday. Great. For you that. should go. And, and both Claude and Superiority are, I think, the buzziest restaurants at least. Yeah. And then on a personal note, my kind of go to celebration place right now is Francie and yeah. Williamsburg which I think John Winterman is a, a veteran at this point, front of house guy yeah. who owns it. And Chris Cipollone, the chef. Oh, yeah, man. To me, he's like, when I shorthand for savvy food people, I say to me, he's like Gotham era Alfred Portali 2.0. Yeah, he's... He's. I love when he, remember when he's cooking the hotel at that one place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that place? Do you remember the name? Of it? No, but like back in like thirty eight, thirties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That place was that was like yeah. put him on the map with Wells. Speaking of Wells, what are the critics missing? What is there something either a restaurant or a trend or something that you're seeing that maybe the critics are not quite giving the respect it, it's due? Um, I mean, in all honesty, I feel like um, this kind of antipathy. Uh, toward, I think fine dining is a term no one knows, like ask 10 different people and they'll give you 10 different answers. But I think this antipathy to sort of the higher end of it, um, places like One White Street in Tribeca, um, places like, I don't understand this, Clover Hill, uh, which, you know, I stumbled upon one day. I remember on your list in your podcast, yeah. I mean, I was just had just moved back to Brooklyn a year ago, and I was walking my dog, and I walked by this cute restaurant. Uh, chef who had spent time at Bettany and mm-hmm. 11 Madison Park and 1 White Street, who's early 30s and who's black, mm-hmm. hadn't gotten a review. Yeah. I mean, that's and still hasn't been reviewed by a major outlet here. And now they have a Michelin. You know, this yeah. is no longer something that me and a couple of people were on to. Was it a beard semi? No, it wasn't. That's uh, he was up. Best new. He was up for whatever they're now calling Rising Star. Rising Star, uh, which right. is they call it something else now. Um, he was there with his mom. Oh, I love that. And, and, um, but yeah. yeah, like like I do think to me, it's just not even d- debatable at this point that there is a real anti-luxury fine dining level of dining amongst a lot of critics. Um, And I could talk about that all day because I think it's silly. Um, You know, I think the the blacklisting of like Angie Marr and her current restaurant, which... You feel there's a blacklist? Of Angie? Yeah. I don't know how you explain the fact that that restaurant hasn't been properly reviewed. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Beatrice Inn, for people who don't know, was one of the hottest restaurants in New York. Very celebrated restaurant. She opens this very quirky, not for everybody. I mean, it's not. There's a dress code. There's a dress code. That's a little quirky. There's a lot of dishes that harken back yeah. to... Uh, I mean, she does, you know, veal brains Rossini on the menu, right? But Angie's a very talented chef. She's a very unique voice. She's very ambitious. The place has been there, I think, two years as of this summer. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's had, I mean, it made some lists, like the yeah. Esquire Best New Restaurant list. Joshua David Stein did that right up. But I think, yeah, I think the non-review of it is is pretty bizarre. Yeah. I think that's really weird. I also think, you know, the New York Times, um, used to have the 25 and under review and then uh, in addition to the regular review. I I think it's so weird that at probably the most um, fertile time in restaurants in this city, I don't know why they don't just have two critics. Yeah, I don't know why. To keep up and not have to make 
these decisions and not have to have you and I have a conversation about, I mean, why should anything really be overlooked? Mm-hmm. I think it's weird. I, yeah. I don't know why they don't just. Well, especially given how a Times mention even, but of course a review can really change the game forever for folks that maybe aren't getting the, the exposure. So yeah, and th- there's a real platform there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it has to be the Times right. anymore. Yeah. You know, I think a, a Raven Eater, you know, yeah. or. Well, they don't have a critic anymore. Yeah, but I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, but but, but that would have been to your, I mean, an this, equivalent. You right. Know, no, it, it's missed. New I mean, York Magazine. I just the Times. You know, used to be like the Times is probably still on Broadway. You know, yeah. like a bad review could put your lights out, yeah. and a good review, yeah, could set you up for like five, eight, ten years. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Literally. No, Literally. absolutely. Uh, we could go all day about about criticism in restaurants, but I love these picks and I, I appreciate it. We'll get to, back to more restaurant picks, but we have to talk about your book. Thank um, you. Let's let's get into like broadly this concept of the dish. Um, how did you land on it? And I, I'm just going to say this. It's really good. Thank you very much. I mean, it, Andrew, it's the type of book that it's like, duh, when you get to the concept, but then when you get to the execution, um, and actually following through this this high-level concept of, of tracing a single dish um, through the course of a, a week or longer in a restaurant, you'll get into that. It's really hard to pull that off in terms of reporting and terms of getting the voice of, of the folks involved. So bravo. I, Thank I, you very much. I'm going to link to it. You should buy this book. Um, how did you land on that concept? Um, the, I'm, uh, people laugh when I say this. It's in the introduction of the book. I, 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 I dreamt it one night. I woke up <laughs> and right. I had this idea. <laughs> Uh, and it was the exact idea I wrote. It was to take the reader uh, and introduce them to all the people whose lives and work come together uh, on one plate, you know, one dish at a single restaurant, both in and out of the restaurant. So, you know, all the people who come together in the restaurant from the dishwasher to the line cook to garmanger to uh uh, to prep people, to the server, right, all that, this and the chef owner, owners in this case. Uh, and then beyond the restaurant, you know, to go to the farms. Uh, I got very lucky. I really wanted to talk to someone who'd been through the immigration process, and I mm-hmm. found that person. Um, Which is such a key element for all operators right now is dealing with immigration and and just negotiating labor and and either on the books, off the books, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the off the books thing was interesting because, you know, for me and maybe I'm a little wimpy on this front, you know, that's like a third rail. I've been to enough farms to like I don't I don't ask people about that stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. But somebody mentioned voluntarily that these two workers at one of the farms uh, were documented, and I just jumped on it. Yeah. Uh, they weren't always documented, so I did get a little of that, yeah. of what that's like to be someone living here in fear of deportation. Um, uh, but uh, And I was always going to do what I've done in the book, which is tell it during a service. Um, uh, I'm a huge fan of the writer John McPhee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to John <laughs> McPhee, but, you know, uh, uh, John McPhee, I'm a tennis fan, wrote a very famous book called Levels of the Game, where he dissects a U.S. Open semifinal between two players, one of whom was the late, amazing Arthur Ashe. Mm-hmm. And he uses the game and how the men play and how they look at key junctures in the match and all of that as l- jumping off points to relating their biographies. And the match becomes a biography. It's... I've always been in love with that notion. And I wanted to try to tell this 
I mean, the book basically takes place from when a chit or a ticket makes its way into mm-hmm. the kitchen for one party to when that party's last savory course comes out. Yeah, and that's I that's, mean, that's, the, that's your match. Right. That's well, like, it, yeah, I'm not comparing myself to John McPhee, yeah. who was an absolute well, genius. It, it's, but it's, this book's this book's special, and and thank you. and I love the scene. Um, you went to a, a slaughterhouse, and I think in food food writing uh, and in television, um, it's often really quite taboo to actually get into the killing of of animals. It's something that um, talk about a third rail. That's definitely a third rail. But you you really write about beautifully. We meet this absolute character, the the farmer, uh, to, uh, from Lewis John Slagle. Yeah. Uh, amazing personality. Yeah. Great businessman. <laughs> Great businessman. I talk in there a little about his business acumen. Yeah. Um, and funny. Yeah. You know? Funny. Funny. Um, I think legitimately was worried I might black out when he took me into the slaughter. Yeah. There's a moment, right? He, yeah. he does warn you and you, you get into yeah. the visceral element of, of witnessing a <laughs> slaughter. But, don't, you know, I, 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 as I say in the book, I've seen butchery. I've never seen slaughter before. Yeah. And... And I hope, I mean, Lewis John hasn't seen the book yet. I hope he won't be upset by that description. To me, you know, it's funny. I was in uh, Antwerp a couple of years ago. I went to the 50 Best and they had a day of like uh, presentations. And there was a woman, um, I forget which country she was from. She's Asian, but I can't mm-hmm. remember which country. And she did a presentation and it was all about, basically, if you if you eat meat, you should not be... Uh, uncomfortable or have an objection to being informed about that process. Uh, you are the beneficiary of that yeah, process. You really are. You're you're really at the you're the end user, and you, and you really can't take for granted what has happened. And there's not a prettier version of it. No. You know, I mean, what I describe is what goes on everywhere. And and uh, uh, and you know, if you went back enough centuries, you know, we would have had to kill something and do that ourselves if we, we would wanted have. a steak, right? So. Uh, to me, that's just part of understanding what goes into this. It's one tiny little step in the food chain that makes this sirloin dish, a strip loin dish in the book possible. Um, and then for me, the real, uh, the, my favorite thing in the book, because it was the thing I least expected to be as interesting as it was, is I spent a day with a delivery driver mm-hmm. from one of the produce farms. And I've only ever seen delivery people coming in and out of the kitchen door. You know, I don't, I've never thought about what it takes for someone to just park a truck for 10, 15 minutes in a major American city. It's a hostile environment, Yeah, you know? And these people are like like urban traffic special forces guys. And like, being rushed and, and having that like possible ticket linger over their pay. The whole thing. There's a lot of pressure there. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, Knowing the concept, a single dish traced through all the elements, finding the match, you had to pick the right restaurant, and you really didn't have money options outside of the single restaurant to pick. As a writer-to-writer, a reporter-to-reporter, to me, this is the biggest gamble and really the big success of the story because you picked a restaurant that had so many dimensions. Um, it really worked. So let's hear about the restaurant you chose and also a little bit about the dish you chose. Sure. Well, I didn't choose the dish. That's okay. actually an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, listen, we were all at home <laughs> yeah. in the lockdown of COVID. I actually had this idea before COVID. Um, you know, a lot of stuff in the book became more timely in the intervening time. Like there were all these articles in 2020 about, you know, why don't more people recognize their team on their menu? Why don't people yeah. uh, indicate a sous chef who 
came up with a dish idea on the menu, you know? Um, yeah, that was a moment, credit. No, that was a big moment. That was a big moment. Now, and all the, a lot of restaurateurs were quoted in those pieces. I don't know that any of them have actually done this thing they were complaining nobody did. Amanda Cohen in New York has started doing that. Always. Dirt candy. Yeah, she's yeah, all, she yeah, credits her people for their contribution. Yeah. On the menu. That was one of my special conversations yeah. that I did on, on my show, right? But I had this idea before all those articles, but I, I felt like it became more timely during this plague, you know, that we were all living through. And I sold the book in a, a getting-to-know-you phone call that my agent set up with a, a wonderful editor at Mariner Books. Uh, actually, he's the publisher at Mariner, mm-hmm. Peter Hubbard, who I'd never met. And I just threw the idea at him during the call, and he ended up buying it, but— I didn't have a subject picked out. Yeah. Um, and so I went on in my mind what was like a casting exercise. <laughs> and I networked around. I called some writer friends in in, in certain markets um, that I was unfamiliar with, like down south. And, mm-hmm. um, and, a, and during that time, I had a remote podcast interview set up with Beverly Kim, who along with her husband, Johnny Clark, are, they're the chef owners of Parachute. In Chicago, which is they had a Michelin star there. They won best new chefs there several years ago. One of the most decorated modern Korean restaurants of our time and and an absolutely incredible restaurant to visit. Yes. And uh, at the time, Parachute was closed. They, They took the pandemic to make some renovations. And their sister restaurant, which was much less well known, is a place called Wherewithal, which had a weekly changing tasting menu and a brand new chef de cuisine named Taylor Ploshahansky. Uh, who came up in in the one-off hospitality group, Paul Kahan and, and Donnie Medeo's group. And, um, you know, Beverly did my show that we didn't, I don't use video when I record remotely. So I, I just had, I'd never met her in person. And she was so open and she was so honest um, and had an interesting personal story. Um, and... I didn't know anything about Johnny at the time, which is kind of funny because Johnny and I become very close. And the the bio of him in the book is very personal and very – he really gave mm-hmm. me a lot of personal information. I mean including things about depression, yeah. like a lot of stuff. And, um, and at the end of the call, <laughs> uh, after I stopped recording, I said to Beverly, listen, this is going to come out of left field. But do you think you and your team might want to be at the center of a book? Hmm. Because, and you'll appreciate this as a writer, Matt, you know, I, I had talked to some people. Um, I hadn't, and there were some people who would have worked. I hadn't fallen in love, you know? Yeah. I hadn't hung up the, I hadn't had that call where I hung up the phone and I just wanted to start typing. And Beverly was that for me, for whatever reason. And and to be totally honest, you know, I also, uh, I want, I've had moments in my writing career where, you know, I've seen stuff that wasn't great. I don't mean horrible, mm. abusive, but just I saw people screw things up or shortcut things or whatever. Yeah. And and I've always had this thing like, oh, these people gave me all this access. Do I put this in the book? Do I leave it out? And, you know, I don't say this in a derogatory way, but Beverly and Johnny basically have a squeaky clean reputation. Yeah. <laughs> and that was very appealing to me. I, I was really, in addition to wanting to kind of profile and give a spotlight. You called the references. You called the you called around. I, I didn't even have to. Right, like felt... everybody. Yeah, I mean they're they're. I mean the work they do all. I won't get into. Oh, it. I I, I admire them greatly. They do so much. Yeah. 
uh, altruistic stuff and stuff for the industry. But you also experienced vulnerability on that call, and so it was yes. a great subject. So you're seeing both like an, a pretty clean image, but also vulnerability. Yeah. So it wasn't no, like they just everything worked for me. Yeah. Uh, the only concession was in my mind, I saw the book happening in more of an emerging, smaller food city. Like I saw the book in my mind in like. Boulder, Colorado, or even Philly, or um, or uh, Charleston, or Austin, Texas. You know, I didn't see it in a big, urban, mm -hmm. well-established city, city where like the Beard Awards happen every yeah, year. I, yeah, that was the one thing I had to in my. I love Chicago. I've always loved yeah. Chicago, but in my mind, I saw it. I saw the city being more of a character than it ended up probably. And this is before a certain television show aired with which yes. gave great great acclaim to uh this this city that Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. But um, interesting timing there, but obviously. Because the restaurant changed its menu every week until yeah. so they are op they were open Tuesday through Saturday at the time, a five day schedule. And I came in on a Sunday and on Monday I met Beverly and Johnny for coffee and Johnny was like, okay, so here's what I think the dish is going to be. Yeah. Like it was still f being formulated. That's wild. Um, and so, and I always, I had always said to them, look, the book's going to be about, it's a tasty menu because I'm going to tell it during service. It's going to be the last savory course. So it's going to be your meat course. Yeah. So they knew that. Um, so you knew you were going to get a protein. You knew you were going to obviously get some kind of vegetable. Yeah. The piece. surprise to me was there was, which I loved, was there's a red wine reduction. Yeah. So I got to go to this really amazing, uh, in all of uh, all places, I went to a vineyard in Michigan from which they get the the wine. Oh, yeah. Which one? The red, uh, Wincroft. Oh, where's that? What city? It's, uh, it's near Pol uh, Pullman. Okay, cool. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's just right on the like right on the it's, yeah. it's just uh inland from um the river. Lake Lake Michigan. Oh, the lake. Lake Michigan. The lake. Yeah, yeah. 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 I grew up like in forty five minutes from there. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. You went to the same high school as one of my one of the characters. Exactly. Yeah. I that character showed great vulnerability. And let's uh, I wanna ask you about the reporting of it and, and getting to know many of the, the back of house staff, the front of house staff, the farmers, the Vintner, how did Andrew? How did you report this book, and how did you get so much in so, such a short amount of time? Because it seems this book was written relatively quickly, and that's a real praise well, for you. Thank you. Uh, I don't think it was written that quickly. I, I it was researched quickly. Some people take five years for the shit. So I'm just saying. Like, well, I took the last. Don't don't ever ask my last publisher how long my last. Book well, took yeah. Me. So it does sometimes take <laughs> yes. five, eight years. No, no, no. I wrote it in about a year. That's um, that's. But but um, so I. I spent, uh, I'm going to say a week, but in reality that was five days because the restaurant was not open Sunday and Monday. Um, I spent a week at, at the restaurant Wherewithal, uh, which for people who know Chicago, it's in the Avondale neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's not like the, the a main restaurant thoroughfare. It's a little off the beaten path. Um, and I had gotten the blessing of the whole team before I came. I wrote a, I still don't know whether they read it to them or just shared it. But I wrote a letter to the staff telling everybody what I was going to do and saying, look, if you don't, if you're not up for this, please speak up. And everybody gave me their blessing. And I, so they only served dinner, but I was there basically from when the first employee was in in the morning and I was observing and I was interviewing uh, when I could. Uh, I didn't do more than one interview, I don't think, with anyone except for Johnny Clark, who's, who's the, one of the chef owners. Um, but the interviews were, you know, about an hour-ish 
each. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would go home and make notes at night so I could ask follow-up questions during the week. And, I, and I'd also spend a lot of time, because uh, I do give a quick sketch of how all the other dishes are made, in this tasting menu, just so which I love because you're not you're not just like focusing on a single dish. You're actually getting into like the creation of the tasting menu, this restaurant, the the genesis of wherewithal. Yeah, and like we see a menu meeting for the following week. Right, right. We see the first the first ideation meeting yeah. at like twelve thirty in the morning after service. Yeah, I right? love that scene where you're in the back of the, in the back having patio. a glass of wine. You yeah. actually have a photo of it. You took some photos along the way. Yes, um, so, I love that. So, uh, but you know, just pretty much straight interviewing, and then a lot of questions about uh, process and technique. Uh, and then at night, I had a, a spot that they identified where I could stand, and I watched. Um, I just watched the whole night of service all week. One night I came in for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise I was watching, just watching, yeah. taking notes. It's something I've done a lot. Yeah. Uh, I took some videos with my iPhone. Yep. Um, I, timed, reporting tool. I did a lot of timing. Yeah. I did a lot of timing. Like when did the, when did the snacks drop? When did the bread drop? When did, you know, so I knew I wanted the pacing of the, the storytelling to be accurate. How different was service each night? It was almost exact. That was amazing. Like Saturday night, which was their busiest night since COVID had started, the day the book takes place, they had 90-some covers. Early in their week, they had maybe nights with 30-something, 40 covers. Uh, you know, a deuce, a six-top, it didn't matter. Like within a within a minute or two, stuff came out like virtually the same every time. The The meat course was about 75 minutes in. Wow. Does Bev and Johnny run Expo together or is it is it Well, there's actually a chef de cuisine. Oh right. Because you they that. were going to be reopening parachute That's right. and they they have three children and a dog. Yeah. So Taylor, Taylor was the one who did most of the expediting, but um and this is described in the book, whenever she was like doubling and this is that time, you know, there, there weren't enough employees. They didn't have a pastry chef. So Taylor would be standing at the pass, but if she turned around, there was a little stainless steel work area, and she was plating desserts. Of course. Yes. So if she memorable had, scenes, if she had to pivot and do dessert, then Johnny or Beverly, if she was there, or uh, Jose Villalobos, who technically was a server there, but was in his normal life the GM of Parachute, but Parachute was closed, so he was helping out, uh, or Jessica Line, who was the actual GM. These are all people who were deputized yeah. to jump in and expedite. You it's, know? it's so it's so cool to hear you talk about the characters in the book, like in this in this form. And listen, if you listener, if you watch the, that certain television show, uh, you will recognize some parallels here. There's characters, there's people with real backstories who come together for that four to eight hour service, however long it is. It's remarkable. And did you have a sense that you would ha- that there'd be this pop culture moment around back of house when you're writing this book? Oh, zero. No, no. Um, I'm glad it was television and not, you know, the written <laughs> word because yeah. I was working on a pro- I, I yeah. was working. I think I talked about it here. I was working on a script with a friend of mine and our whole angle was in addition to the story, we're going to be the first people who get, get it right. Right. So now that card has been played. Wait, how's it going? No, it's, we've, we've had, I had to, I had to pause it because I'm so, I have too much going on. Yeah. And this is like very, I mean, but, um, I just had to let go of anything I wasn't contracted for. Right. No, it's for a time, for a time. But then the other thing I did with the book is I came back to the Midwest two and a half weeks later 
and I had lined up um, interviews at all the farms. So, so if you take, um, you know, central Chicago as your starting point or as like the center of a wheel, everything was between 45 minutes and three hours. So um, I went down to Slagle, which is two hours, the meat company, yeah. which is two hours south of the city. Um, there were, I did an overnight in Michigan. That's when I went to Wincroft Vineyards and to Butternut Sustainable Farms, which is also in Michigan. And then, um, and then from Chicago, I went up to Nichols Farms twice because that's also where I met the driver one morning. Mm-hmm. In and in another day, I interviewed the patriarch of the farm. Um, and then, uh, and then Smith's farm, which is mostly an herb farm, um, right on the border of, of Illinois and Indiana. Wow. It's, it's cool that you, you broke up the, the reporting and did it that way. It seems really tactical. I want to zoom out a little bit and ask you, Andrew, what interests you in the chef, the capital T, capital C, the chef? It seems from your work, um, writing several nonfiction uh, works, uh, you wrote about chefs in the 80s and 70s. You also have written 20-plus cookbooks, co-written 20-plus cookbooks. Did I round up? Did I round down? Uh, it's like more like 30, if okay. I'm honest. Go but up. Yeah, cookbooks yeah. and memoirs so written, as a collaborator. But yep. it, a lot of the work f- uh, revolves around the chef. What interests you in the chef? Um, I mean, part of it to me, and this is, I think, less true than when I first got around it, um, and I, I don't have a better comparison, so I'll date myself, you know, but I think part of it is kind of the the Fonzie, Richie Cunningham dynamic, you know, like like mm. I was this nerd who somehow, for whatever reason, got along with all these people I perceived as just, you know, being cooler than I was. Uh, I stumbled into this world as a PR guy. Uh, this was not something I grew up, I loved restaurants always. Always. I didn't have any particular interest in cooking. I didn't have any particular interest in the people in the kitchen, you know, any of that. Um, And then I had a PR job and all of a sudden I was, I developed a lot of friendships. And then one of those friendships led to a book collaboration. Uh, Which one was the first one? It was the first person I ever ghosted for was Alfred Portali in the heyday of the Gotham Bar and Grill because he was my client. Yeah, And I would help him if he had to write a speech or write a letter. And, I mean, that's a form of ghostwriting. I didn't recognize it at the time. And I ended up writing the Gotham Bar and Grill Cookbook. That's a tough guy, man. What? That's a tough guy. Alfred? Yeah. Ah. He, he, he ah, rolls he's, a little, he's a little shy. He's a little shy. Okay. <laughs> but but uh, what fascinates me is, you know, as, a, as a, I think a good point of comparison, right, is I uh, also have done some writing about tennis, and, you know, you, you you do a biography of a tennis player and they're remarkably similar for the most part. I mean, their family backgrounds might be different, but a lot of them commit very young and then they're in an academy and then they're starting to play tournaments and that's the life. Mm-hmm. The whole chef thing, first of all, I, you know, again, this is less so now, but it used to be true almost to a person. The whole uh, population was people who were on their second or third or fourth attempt at figuring out what the hell they wanted to do with their life. You know, these are people who didn't fit anywhere else. Uh, that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I don't know how you can be empathetic and not find that fascinating. Um, and then all the different ways people come to it, all the different ways you can train from like going to a place like the, the Culinary Institute of America to trade. 
college school or home ec to doing that home ec, yeah. right or like the high school hybrid yeah, courses yeah, right yeah. the vocational schools Bo- boces yeah all that to um What'd you say, Boces? Boces, yeah, Boces, Upstate New York. Absolutely, yeah. I have several friends. Great training ground for chefs in New York. You, Harold Dieterle is a proud graduate. Boces, of Boces you program. see it a lot, yeah. Uh, but you know, there's that whole, re- and then there's the self-taught. You know, chefs like Patrick O'Connell. Yeah, you know, who has three Michelin stars now at the Inn at Little Washington. Is Jason a Hamill. Jason Hamill in Chicago at, at Lula's Cafe. I mean, all the different ways people come to it. All the different ways. Uh, uh, they can express themselves on the plate. Uh, and then it's all set in, you know, this is, again, this is the idea of my, of the, I don't mean to keep self-plugging within the interview. This is the time to do it. But this is about the book. Like the book is also, it's like, then you take all those backstories and all those different ways of getting to this place. And then on a daily basis, you know, they have to function in this high pressure situation. And you have all these people from all these different backgrounds who need to get together in the foxhole, you it's know, rem- to get along. Like that, like I hear myself saying it, I've been covering this for like 25 years. I am still genuinely excited by it. It's so well said, Andrew. Thank you for laying that out. And I have to fully agree. I, I came to food writing through music writing and, and film writing, and I did that early in my career. And I just felt when you take these cast of characters, these folks with these interesting backgrounds, and when you interview them, I always found musicians to be the most boring interviews, like truly um, just on message a lot of them a lot of them into their own art and in a way that it doesn't translate but then you get a chef and you start talking to them and listeners of the show well we have plenty of chefs on there's just a there's a candidness there's just a candor there there's like this level of of intensity there's a level of friendliness i mean the range of emotions when you talk to chefs is 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 remarkable and dynamic and i love that you lay it out this way thank you i also feel like i think i think things have changed a little i think you Probably being you're younger than I am, you probably slipped in just under the wire. But you know, uh, I think a turning point in any uh, uh, expressive field, let's call it, from sports to all the disciplines you just named, is when people start lawyering up. You know, when people start having gatekeepers, yeah. right? Like I know, I know a tennis writer. He's still writing. He used he once stayed with Jimmy Connors in a condo during a tournament in Florida. Yeah. Right? Or you talk to these old baseball reporters who yeah. would go stay in the same motel, you know, down during spring break and interview people at the pool. Or you're on the set of Apocalypse Now and or reporting that. about that. Or yeah. that. And you know, you look at the early writings that like Ruth Reichel did, yeah. where she was like just friends with all these people. And I I was I'm very fortunate uh to have come into this when I did because um if you can have those direct relationships and not have them be managed, not that I'm looking for or you're looking for dirt, right? But to have a, a situation where you have some trust in the bank and people – like I don't send questions ahead of my podcast. I refuse to do it. No one's ever backed out because of that, and I think it's because I have a reputation mm-hmm. now. And I think you have a similar – uh, you enjoy a similar thing, right? You there's a lot of people you have direct relationships with. True, and it's and it's, it makes a big difference, and and it makes a big difference in getting people to be themselves with you. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I I agree. And it's it's if you do it long enough and you hang out, and you actually have to dine in the restaurants on your own dime, and you know it's something that you mentioned at the top that you you oftentimes you do pay for your own meals, and I think when you're a guest at a restaurant, you get to know these folks, and it really does change the dynamic versus it being through a PR and gatekeeper and all that stuff. Um, I want to transition and talk about 
Pino Luongo, he came up in a conversation with Susan Spungen, and um, I don't want to let that name pass because you've written a book with Pino, and he's like a, a person, a chef who had such important, like he was a he was a historic, he's almost a historical figure um, in cooking on the East Coast, um, but we don't know who Pino Luongo is. Uh, I speak like I speak like it's in the past, by the way, which is hilarious. Which is funny because he's operating a couple of restaurants right now yeah. in New York City. You can absolutely go to his restaurant. You can right go. Now. He'll yeah. be there. Too. Yeah, you can He'll go visit there. him. He's, he's uh, li- very well living human. But I just think, and I have a second follow up. But tell me about Pino. Well, first of all, we should say this is how long it's been since he was in the the real limelight, right? <laughs> Is there's a chapter in Kitchen Confidential about Pino? I of course, and that yeah. absolutely Pino Noir, the Dark Prince of whatever they call. He any calls reader it. of Bourdain will know Pino is very much a part of that that story. Well, I don't know. If maybe people don't remember the name at this point, but um, I do. Yeah. Uh, but Pino, uh, so in the in the early 1980s, Pino had been an actor in uh, Italy and uh, came over to the United States. Uh, worked for uh, another famous restaurant that's probably already starting to fade, Da Silvano, run by Silvano Marchetti. Oh, my gosh. And Pino kind of became Silvano's co-front-of-house guy and, um, you know, saw a shift to be made from acting to being a restaurateur and uh, worked around. I still can't picture any of these times in his life when he worked for other people. Um, have you ever met him? No. Maybe that's where we'll go have dinner. I feel like I need, I mean, we'll, maybe Savano, we'll go have dinner at one of his places. Back in a certain era, DeSavano was like in page six every night. Oh, every you'd day. go to lunch there and like Patty Smith would be sitting there yeah. having lunch or, uh, or, or some writer. Caprio, yeah. And right. A lot of famous Nick Toshis was. There yeah. There was the definitely like a, a art crowd, but then there was yeah. a celebrity crowd too. But, um, uh, in any event, Pino started doing restaurants as a partner with uh, with a couple that had like uh, I th- they still have it I think Il Cantanori that was actually mm-hmm. Pino Luongo's first restaurant on 10th Street, um, uh, and it's the same couple that have uh, Periali the the little Greek place in in Chelsea and um, and then he eventually broke off on his own and he was like the prince of the city like in the in the 1980s there was a moment. When Pino had in uh, people who've been in New York long enough will know these names, but he had La Madre in in uh, uh, Chelsea on Seventh Avenue, and he had Coco Pazzo uptown, mm. which is the one that uh, Susan was talking yep. about, where Mark Straussman got famous, and then Cesare Cassell was the chef yeah. there, Mr. Rosemary in the Pocket, yeah, yep, and um, Il Toscanaccio, uh, Mad Sixty One. Um, uh, and on and on and on. And you got a place called Sapore de Mare and I think technically Bridgehampton. Yeah. Um, uh, and. of Bridgehampton. No, it was called um, Sapore de Mare. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a, a name of an old Italian mm. pop song about mm. the summertime. And um, I mean, Pino had a, a car and driver and he made the rounds every night. And I mean, he does refer to himself these days as a chef and you will see him mm-hmm. dressed as a chef. In those days, he was. He had a lot of influence in the kitchen, but he was really the the owner, impresario, yeah. front of house guy. Um, very charming to his customers. Very um, uh, divisive among journalists. Like we had a book party for one of the books we did together, and Florence Fabricant of the New York Times was there, and she was telling stories about Pino. But there's just as many 
journalists out there who he may maybe he kicked out of their uh, yeah. one of his restaurants or yeah. you know Pino is a very operatic guy and um but that was him. I mean, he used to take a helicopter out to the Hamptons yeah. on the weekend to go be with And this him. is a restaurateur. This is a food guy. This is not a celebrity, but he was in an era when he was definitely uh written about more than most operators. Well, he uh, I don't know what the comparison and Oh, you know what it would be similar to? Like the 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 big budget version of Ronnie and Chinton, the guys behind Unapologetic Foods, yeah. how they're on like a roll now and they're opening Damaka and Sema yeah. and Rowdy Rooster yeah. fried chicken and and it just keeps you know Masala Wallens. Yeah, Pino is like that, but on a multi million dollar scale. Yeah, it was they just kept coming. And the reason I mention Unapologetic Foods is a comparison. Is Pino? I do believe is one of these people who. You know, there was a time in this country when you talked about Italian, you, you talked about Northern Italian or Southern Italian. Right. That was it. And then now we can all say this is like a Sicilian restaurant or this is a Tuscan restaurant or this is Emilia Romagna. Well, Pino kind of owned Tuscany and 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 taught people about Tuscany. Yeah. His first uh, cookbook was called The Tuscan in the Kitchen, you yeah. know, and he and I did a book called Simply Tuscan. Yeah. And he's one of the people who helped elevate the American, I believe, the American understanding like, no, it's not Northern and Southern. There are these 20 regions it's, and they're all distinct and they all have their own food. And you I know, love the, this. I love this uh, description of Pino and, and maybe I'll invite him on the show or, or I, I oh, maybe get him amazing guest. So let me throw this back at you. Part two of this question is who is the other Pino or another Pino that we should be knowing about? You've written about chefs for over 25 years. Is there a, is there a figure that comes to mind that you think we really need to give respect to that maybe we've forgotten about? Well, uh, New York Magazine, I was very happy to see. They just did a piece about Barry Wine. Oh, yeah, right. Who had, quilted the, giraffe. Who had the quilted giraffe. And uh, uh, Barry, I mean, Barry Wine is such an important person. He's so important. Um, I mean, I think there, there's there's many. Uh, a lot of them, it's been kind of rectified, you know, like, like Tony Bourdain did a nice job of putting a spotlight on Jeremiah Tower, mm -hmm. uh, who I think did not get enough credit. Um, my friend Bruce Martyr in, in Los Angeles, who, you know, had restaurants like the West Beach Cafe and DC3 and Broadway Deli back in the day. Um, but, but, you know, never hired a PR firm no. and is a bit of a anti-social uh, guy. Um, you can talk about Michael McCarthy too. Yeah, McCarthy. I don't know. Would you, yeah, maybe he's. No one. I mean, Michael yeah. was big uh, uh, twenty years ago, but yeah. like, if we still forget. It's funny when I was promoting my. This is. I don't mean to be name droppy, but when this I was promoting my last book, I did a talk. Uh, uh, Ruth Reichel was nice enough to be in conversation with me out in L.A. Uh, on the day after publication, and. We were talking about people who'd been like forgotten and she mentioned McCarthy and, and Michael McCarthy. And I said, yeah, I said, I think I really think because he was right at that moment when the spotlight went from the owner impresario to the chef. Yeah. Right. Like Waxman, we know. Well, Waxman, what, there was there was a chef before my uh, Jonathan. Ken Frank was there and then Ken left and within a couple of months. And then Jonathan's the one everyone thinks of as the first chef of Michael's. Mm -hmm. We know Jonathan, and we know him because of the five years he was there, right? But if you had been five years earlier, right, it would have been, uh, 
you would have known Michael. Yeah. You know, like the way everybody knew Patrick Tarai, who was Wolfgang's boss at Mame's own, right? But now it's it's the Wolfgang. But then it and but then it was Wolfgang. Man. You know? So I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh uh, in New York, I mean, I, I'm constantly dismayed at how short the memory is. People who I think didn't – like, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know that Rocco Despirito, before he kind of started doing a lot of television and books and personal appearances, was the most celebrated chef in New York City for a while. Yeah. I mean, there the stories about that – I've never asked either of them if it's true – but, you know, there was a story that Keller, Thomas Keller was in town for the Beard Awards, and the only time he could figure to come in in his schedule while he was here to try the food was like at 11 p.m. or midnight or something. And the urban legend is that Rocco cooked him a full dinner. Kept at that. the place open. Yeah, and I don't know if that's true, but that's the level yeah. that he was at, you know, and, and – uh, uh, or how important a guy like David Burke is. I mean, David's still a very successful restaurateur, but what he did, you know, was so important early on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the guy revolutionized the hamburger in a way that we don't really talk about. That or like, you know, as he likes to say, he was Instagram before Instagram. Yeah, You know, was. like at the, when he was at the River Cafe, they, yes, did, a, the River Cafe they did a chocolate Brooklyn Bridge, you know? I mean, these things matter. Man. So I could go... I could go on. I know. And, and, and really we will have you back. I think that we want to talk about now. I don't want to spoil the the book, but wherewithal went through some changes after you finished writing the book, where did this story kind of end? And where, like, cause I think if you read this book, you want to try this food, but it maybe is impossible right now. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be a little vague, but sure. um, I'll just say there is an epilogue <laughs> to yeah. the book yeah. and there's a, there's an updating that need needed to happen. Um, yeah, people, like, people, if, if, if you want to know before you open the book, you can easily Google wherewithal restaurant, right. you'll, you'll, you can see all the news about it. Well, but, it's, a, it's a moving story. It's a fa- swiftly moving story. And I think that's so indicative of restaurants and you, you hear about all, read about all the work and labor that goes into a single dish in this restaurant, all the craft and all the sweat and everything that you could say about a restaurant. And then of course things change very quickly. Well, it's funny. I was talking to Beverly Kim last week, you know, again, one of the the chef owners of of the restaurant. And she said to me, you know, Andrew, at one point you were talking to us and you said, you know, I don't want to be grim, but like by the time the book comes out, you know, the whole team could be gone. Uh, All the main characters in the book could have moved on. You know, who knows even if the restaurant will be open, you know, and she was like laughing about it because, because even several months, they they held on to people longer than most. Yeah. I went back a full year after researching the book, and I think everybody in the book was still there, which is very unusual. Very unusual. But, you talk to but restaurants. nine months after that, nobody was there. A change. Well, that's we'll leave it at that with the book. And I, I really hope, again, you know, hit that buy button in the in the notes. It's a great book. And anyone who's fans of restaurant culture, check it out. Thank you. Can I just quickly say I'm thrilled you're my I don't know if it'll air first, but this is the first interview I've done for a new book in five and a half years and the first one for the dish. So well, I'm glad it was you, Matt. I'm happy to have you in. Andrew, on this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. The best am pastry with coffee. Uh, a lobster tail from Carlos Bakery in Jersey City. Jersey. I love that pick. The best dessert? For me, it's it's ice cream. A pista- scoop of pistachio ice cream, and I'm a happy man. That's that's a real food writer talking about pistachio over chocolate. Dig it. The best bread? 
So when you say the best spread, it's open-ended. It could be a brand or it could be... Very open-ended. It could be a style. It There's could no a, wrong way to answer. There's absolutely no okay, wrong way. Because I've heard different ways. Except if it's Martin's Pater Roll, which I'm, I'm that's a joke. Sorry. <laughs> I would say Arnold's Pater Yeah, yeah, Arnold's Pater Roll. Uh, I, I am, uh, there's a bakery in Washington, D.C. called Salu, mm. run by a chef named Jonathan Bettany. It is a completely self, they mill all their own grains, and it is truly Whole, everything there is whole grain. There, as you probably know, Matt, you can make something and sell it as whole grain, but it can have white flour yeah, in it, which absolutely. facilitates structure and things like that. Salu is 100% house milled, whole grain, breads, pastries. He has a dessert person there who, who was at Blue Hill when he was there. And it is a special, special, you would not know to look at it. It looks like any another any other hipster coffee yeah, uh, coffee but it, pastry the, place the work being they have that the stuff middle. coming out of that out of that oven is sublime i love that call your favorite new york city restaurant classic edition well i hasten to add i have a fascination with many places i never ate like the quilted giraffe yeah. uh, of places i did go it's entirely personal but i'll probably say the gotham barn grill awesome what about the new dog edition favorite new york city restaurant new dog edition uh i would say Semi-long-term Francie, uh, but uh, of the moment for me, Claude. Yeah. Claude hits me just right. I absolutely love that place. Your favorite chef to hang out with? I can't answer that. Really? <laughs> Too many to name? I, I can send you a, the, the Robs at New York Magazine asked me that question 20 years ago, and yeah. I said, are you trying to kill me? Yeah. I'll tell you this. The, I think the chef probably I'm most close to Um is David Waltuck, formerly yeah. of Chanterelle, yeah. who has been an amazing, amazing friend to me. That's amazing. Um, so that I'm, I'll, I'll say that. Oh, David Waltuck, the first chef I ever interviewed. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I was in 2006. I was doing a magazine article about a gadget, and I, I brought a kitchen gadget to his to Chanterelle down in Tribeca, and he, and he was so game to play around with it and test it. And that was the first chef I met, first professional kitchen I'd ever been in as a writer. Such a nice guy and his, he's, his wife. He's yeah. Karen's great. Karen, I yeah. just spoke to them three days ago. But David, I'll, I'll I'll make that my answer. Love it. Your favorite chef to learn from? I gotta say Alfred Portali yeah. again, only because when I started working with him, I was I was a wannabe screenwriter who was just taking a detour. I didn't really know that much about cooking, and you know, I wrote three books with Alfred right mm. out of the gate, and I, I kind of learned how to cook from doing that. It's really special when you have that connection with a chef and they actually learn stuff from him, and obviously you had a friendship. You did three books. Yeah. Wow. Uh, your favorite cookbook of all time, I laugh because of how, but I'm still asking you a question. Favorite cookbook of all time? Uh, I think because um, I'm so good at spotting, like, the seams with ghostwriters, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm can, I'm sure she did all the writing herself. Uh, I will still go, and it was also big when I was making the transition to being a, a food or a chef writer. Um, I will go with uh, the late Judy Rogers' Zuni Cafe cookbook. Second time that's been mentioned today in our recording Oh, session. really? Yeah. That was Jason Hamill's yeah, book. Yeah, that was his Very book. interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a special book, and it makes well, me think— Well, Jason's a writer. Jason is an absolute writer, yeah. and and that, that that book has come up four or five times in the course of these questions. So. I shook her hand once the night yeah. she won all these Beard Awards. Of, she's high on the list of people. She was very sick with cancer already when I did Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, mm -hmm. and uh, I wish I could have spent time with her. Yeah. We'll do a story on Zuni. Maybe you'll write it. 
if you have time. Uh, we'll talk. Yeah, let's talk. I let's got, do I got a, I'll point you to you're, something you're, I did. A, you, a, a, a you've audio done it. Thing. No, I, no, no, I haven't. Well, let's let's talk. I love I love working with you as a writer on that, that relationship. Um, couple more. Your favorite recent cookbook discovery? Uh, she was on my show. Uh, Nassim was on my show, mm. but the Sofre yeah cookbook, I thought was extremely well done. Definitely. Um, I'll also throw in an honorable mention for he's done several books and I forget the exact title, but Lior Lev Serkars, yeah. uh, for, uh, the guy behind La Boite, the spice yeah. company, has a has his I think fourth. It's book called the out. Middle Eastern Pantry. The Middle Eastern Pantry, really a wonderful book. We had him in the show recently. I'll link to the show notes. It's he, that book is amazing. Well, he really blends the practical and the personal. It's, he talks about like growing up on a kibbutz and all yep. this kind of stuff, but it's all integral to what he's telling you about food. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it's one of my favorites of yeah. the year. Absolutely. A few more. Your favorite vegetable? Uh, well. I almost feel like the way there should be two New York Times critics, there should be two categories. But, I mean, if I get one pick, it's potato. Really? Well, look at all the stuff you could do. When I went to cooking school at the what used to be called the French Culinary Such Institute. Such a French guy calling potato out. We did two potato days. That's how many preparations there were. I know, and it's such a good call. There's nothing, a, a world there's without, nothing that versatile. A world without French fries. I uh, after it. that would probably be broccoli, Rob. I love. I could eat yeah. broccoli, Rob, sautéed every day of my life. It's such a good call. Last one, your favorite sandwich. Honorable mention goes to a classic Cubano because I grew up in Miami, Florida with a whole set of— my father was married to a woman from Cuba. I had a, more Cuban relatives than I had uh, a natu- uh, p- people who were born here originally. Um, uh, uh, my favorite sandwich is a Reuben. Mm. And because of its unhealthiness, I maybe eat two a year. Yeah, it's it's one of those, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real meal. Sandwiches aren't always meals. But. I also got to know it. There was a place, I'm blanking on the name now, but there's there's a couple of kind of slightly high-endy, relatively high-endy, used to be Jewish delis in Miami. Mm. And there was a place right near where I grew up, and they had a sandwich called the Messy Bessie. <laughs> I didn't know until I got to New York as a college student. It was a Reuben. As a Reuben. Yeah, but I grew up. That name for a 10-year-old was very uh, enticing. Mm. Yeah. Andrew Friedman, thank you for joining This Is Taste. Thanks for having me. What is up, Eliza? Not much. I just got back in New York from my grand West Coast tour. Oh, my gosh. You were there for like two and a half weeks, West Coast? Yeah, about that. I was out in L.A., which is where I grew up for a while, doing a lot of family stuff, eating some food. Then I went up to Portland, and then I went up to Seattle, and now I'm back. Oh, my gosh. So I want to ask you a bunch about each city, but um, favorite, a favorite city? Can you even do that? Oh, no. No. (laughs) It's hard because I'm from L.A., so that's like my hometown. And Portland is where my twin sister lives, so I've been there a couple times. And then Seattle, this was my first time there. So I feel like I had different experiences and relationships with each city, but I liked all of them. Great context. So let's start with L.A. What, what What were some highlights? Some highlights, you know, I always like try to go over to the east side for a big eating day because I stay on the west side with my family. So that is what I did. Well, I will say my mother picked me up from LAX, which (laughs) on its own is only something a mother would do. But she brought me a bagel, which I felt like was stereotyping because I was coming direct from New York. Like I would rather probably have a taco as my first meal. But the bagel that I had was very good. It's from a place called Layla Bagel um, on the west side. And it was a very L.A. bagel and that it had 
beautiful, fresh uh, heirloom tomato slices on top with some lemon zest and some red pepper flakes. And it was I had to kind of eat my words because it was a really good bagel. And I actually was happy to have it, even though I had just come from. Oh, my God. So like first, like shout out to your mom. Like what a great what a great mom. Stacey Abarbanel. She's the best. She's the best. And also. It sounds like this is the kind of bagel that you, like, present on, like, in, like, a, a plate or something or, like, some kind of, like, tray versus it, like, wrapped in paper. It was in a to-go container. Yeah, to-go but container. But not wrapped in paper. Um, yeah, no Because I, not. like, ate it in the car, like, leaving yeah. LAX. And an uh, interesting side note is that there's a minor feud happening in the West LA bagel scene <laughs> between Layla Bagel and a bakery called Jan Isaac that's next door, that they both do bagels and they have these apparently competing lines out in front every day of people kind of eyeing each other up to see who's going to which spot and even when I posted this on my Instagram I had a couple people respond to me and be like oh but did you go to Jan Isaac or oh this is my spot so I kind of inadvertently like wandered into this bagel feud. Wow I think and between the courage too. Courage too which is on the east side. East side exactly like you know LA is a bagel town. Apparently, you know, I feel like the New York Times did that big, like, L.A. has the best bagels story recently, <laughs> kind of to stir the pot, you know, but it was a good bagel. Do you ever make it down to Wexler's in the, in the yeah. Grand Central Market? They're, his bagels were amazing, Micah's bagels. Yeah, the bagels are really good. The pastrami is really good. Love it. Where, where else did you go? I went to Pija Palace, um, yeah. which is, like, the Indian-American sports bar of lore on the east side. Uh, I'm with my parents, like— crashing their anniversary which was really cute and my dad and I started <laughs> off with like a beer and a shot combo that oh they my were gosh. doing <laughs> that was a tequila shot and a, a guava cider whoa super good so cool mixology bartending program there I like that yeah my dad kind of as a joke I think suggested it but I said yes so we did that you guys we did it. Yeah. got fried okra they do a malai rigatoni that's like if uh Penne alla vodka and butter chicken had a baby. That's <laughs> the inspiration for that sauce, which is super good. And then we also had one of their special pizzas that was a hot honey pepperoni kind of situation. The pizzas were my favorite. I went there uh, earlier this year and I thought the pizzas were so standout. Um, it's not, I mean, the sports bar is a cool like angle, but it's like a like serious restaurant. Yeah, it's right. super serious. The pizza is very thin crust. Yeah. I liked it a lot. And then we popped over to Quarter Sheets down the street for dessert Wait, after. Wait, oh, I was saying more pizza? Not like, more pizza. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I saw Aaron and I was like, we just had pizza. Yeah. So I just want to get my parents some like anniversary dessert. We got um, a nectarine slab pie okay. that Hannah was doing. That was really great. My God, you tapped in with uh, Hannah at, at, at Quarter Sheets. What's what's good with those guys? They're good. They're coming to New York, um, food and wine, yeah. and going to try to eat some pizza with them, I think. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good vibe. I kind of like frantically texted her when I was leaving dinner with my parents because we ended earlier than I thought. I was like, <laughs> do you have any dessert left? Like, yeah. let me know. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. Did you have, did you find parking down there? Uh, we did find parking. Yeah. It took a second. It's a challenge, but, but you're you know, locals. It was good. Um, the last place in LA that I want to call out is a new wine bar that opened called Stir Crazy from some people that are affiliated with Four Horsemen or were affiliated mm-hmm. with Four Horsemen here in New York. And it's just such a great like wine bar vibe. And the best thing I had was a halibut carpaccio with brown butter. Yeah, right. Come on. I'd never had brown butter on like raw fish in that kind of yeah. way before. And it was so, so good. Yeah, like brown butter like drizzle the top a piece of raw fish with acidity and salt as well. 
Nice. It was great. And I went after we went wedding dress shopping with my sister. And then I found out that another friend of mine visiting from New York also went after going wedding dress shopping <laughs> with one of their friends because it's kind of in this like wedding dress Bermuda Triangle that <laughs> I did not know existed until this trip. So apparently this is like the wedding dress to stir crazy pipeline. That's a great like one two punch. Um, very unique niche content here. We're doing niche yeah, content. this is my my segment niche content. <laughs> so let's uh, let's hop in that train that plane or train. I don't know how you got up there. You probably took a plane up to Portland. Mm-hmm. You know, let's make us like a sound of planes going mm-hmm. plane, maybe sound. I don't know. I'm not going to do that, but... We have an editor. We have an editor. Clayton, Clayton. cue the plane sound. Plane sound, okay. I flew to Portland, and I went camping, so I didn't eat a ton of meals, like, out in the city, but I did have maybe three standouts. I went to a Vietnamese place called Friendship Kitchen that is super popular. That is, like, one of the best meals I've had in recent memory. We had really good, um, like, shaking beef, and we also had something that they call a dream roll, which is a summer roll wrapped around a fried spring roll. Yeah, right on. Have you ever had that before? Um, I have. I've had that uh, in Korea uh, in the past, but it sounds amazing. It was my first time experiencing that, and I kind yep. of had this moment of just like, oh, why, is, why isn't everyone doing this? It's called like, Friendship? Uh, friendship Kitchen, yeah. yeah. And then they call that kind of double roll the dream roll. Dream roll, right, right. right. Uh, and I just thought it was so smart and like both of my favorite appetizers together, you know? So what, let's, let's zoom out a bit about Portland. Um, I was there last summer. I haven't been back. What's, what's, what's the vibe in the city? How are you feeling about uh, the restaurant scene when you're doing a little research? I know you went camping, so you weren't fully in Portland. Yeah, I think Portland always has great food going on. Yeah. And the way that they have uh, this culture of food carts and yeah. the little parking lots with all the food carts, and that kind of creates an incubator for people to open their own restaurants. I think that was the story of Friendship Kitchen, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's always really cool to see. So that was really fun. I went to a Bialy pop-up called Bialy Bird, and mm-hmm. I got some crazy Bialis, like zucchini, chermoula, Bialy, oh. a miso potato Bialy, a hatch green chili corn Bialy. That's really neat that yeah. Bialy has become like a global uh, food, like yeah, changing. I, I don't know why Bialy because I will say the bagels in Portland are pretty terrible. Mm. My like sister's fiance is from New York, so yeah. he's a huge bagel lover, and I've never had a good bagel there. But the Bialys were quite good. Yeah, apologies to Portland, but <laughs> yeah. I feel pretty confident saying that. Yeah, but the Bialys were great, and then we brought them camping with us and used them to make uh, breakfast sandwiches Amazing. the next day. Yeah, uh, Portland's at Portland in in September. That that's when you want to go there. It's just like the best weather possible. I love that. The leaves were barely starting to yeah. change. They had all of the produce in the market. And I also went to this burger pop-up called Paradiso that the folks at Guero are doing and had just a great burger. We did burger appetizers because we wanted to go to <laughs> get Thai food for dinner. Yeah. And they had a long wait. So we, like, split burgers. And then we went to this place called Padi and got Kasoy, just kind of, like, yeah. comfort food. Potty. It was great. Yeah. I had that on my list when I was visiting last year. But... I ended up having uh, the Nong chicken. That's what I had mm, instead. Yeah. That is also like comfort food to the max. Oh my God. I love the Hainese chicken from Nong Thai style. Um, okay. So plane sound up to Seattle. Drove. Like, driving sound. Oh, so driving sound. So no plane sound. Driving sound up to Seattle. That's a cool drive, right? Yeah, it was cool. It was like two and a half hours okay. probably. I went to the Nike uh, employee store before we drove up there. Do you know about this? I can theorize that you got a deep discount because you know somebody who works at Nike. Yeah, well, my girlfriend knows someone that works at Nike and they're based in uh, Portland and they have like a crazy 40% off employee store. So I went there. What'd you get? 
Just socks. I, <laughs> Wait, no 90s? No Air Max 90s? I wanted, to, I wanted to get, like, the Nike tabby sandals that are so stupid, <laughs> but they were out of them, and then all of the other shoes they had, it just wasn't quite right for me. But it was really kind of just crazy to yeah. go. It was That was a whole experience. And then Seattle was so delicious. I right. went to this place called Local Tide that is a great seafood spot, and I had uh, maybe, like, the best clam chowder I've ever had before. What makes great clam chowder? And are we are we talking Manhattan? Are we talking, like, New England? What are we talking about? I don't even—I think it's kind of their own style, yeah. I would say. It had, you know, potatoes in addition to the clams. It had whole clams in it, which I always really like in a chowder, like, in the shell still. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really beautiful. It was really savory, and they do a lot of, um, like, Asian-inspired dishes on the menu. We had a shrimp toast that was really good and a rockfish banh mi, and so— I don't really know what they were doing in the chowder, but I think that it was probably, like, pulling from ingredients that were in other dishes on the menu, too. Back to this rockfish banh mi. Are we talking about—is this, like, a fried fish banh mi, or are we talking a braised rockfish? It was more of, like, a flaky braised rockfish. To be honest, it was not my favorite compared to the shrimp toast and the chowder, which were both just so good. But um, it's no fault of the rockfish. I think that just, like, a traditional, like, pork— on me has so much flavor and so much going yeah. on in it that it's just kind of hard to like swing Swap against the that proteins. you know yeah i agree i think on me yeah you think about pate you know think about porky yeah. what else did you have there in seattle my other standout meal in seattle is that i went to musong which is a filipino restaurant that's been widely regarded for a long mm-hmm. time in a and a home, which is super nice. It also happens to be the restaurant where Si Pem Zhang, that I interviewed about her book, um, Landed Milk and Honey, ate the meal that she said kind of galvanized the book. And it was specifically the Kari Kari short rib there. So I had to get that. And it really was like one of the best things wow. I've had. It's so tender and like that peanut sauce is just so silky and delicious and it's also just a really special restaurant everyone that works there is so kind there is like a family having their like lolo's like 90th birthday party when i was there and we were just eavesdropping on them like it just very much felt like a community vibe in seattle wow i mean really nice choices here and and i'd been i went there in july and didn't go to any of these places so you hit up other places and you, you went to book larder right i went to book larder they gave me an amazing list of like 40 more places yeah. that i need to go to i liked the way that they divided it up into different types of things that they felt seattle was known for so there was like a seafood section there was a banh mi section that was separate from the sandwich section which <laughs> i appreciated that that was its own category yeah Uh, And it was cool. It was my first time in Seattle, and I really felt like it was similar to places I'd been on the West Coast, but also had its own vibe and that there's so many more places I need to go to. Yeah, uh, really, Book Larder, one of the the best stores for cookbooks and food books in America. Yeah, I got um, a copy of Save Me the Plums by Ruth Reichel that I had not read. So that was like a great plain reading. Oh, you just started Save Me the Plums. Yeah, well, maybe I'll talk about it in another segment. Yeah, we'll (laughs) talk about that later. But I think um, I just got her novel in advance of it. So I can't wait to crack into that. Oh, I'm jealous. Okay. Yeah, we can we can book club that um, in the office. But hey, thanks for sharing. What a great trip. I'm, I'm really happy to see you back, though. That's like, that's the most important thing. You're back. Yeah, I'm back. I'm well fed. And now it's going to be fall. So we're ready. Good talking to you. You too. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 